0: Hello and welcome to episode 116 of the Conversations with Ross podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jimmy Dore. Jimmy is a comedian, radio host, and author of the book, Your Country Is Just Not That Into You. Jimmy, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today.
1: Ross, thanks for having me on. I like the name of your show. Very creative title. No, you know, people don't have conversations anymore. <laughs> right? So it's nice to have to have a conversation.
0: Let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to comedy in the first place.
1: Oh, okay. I think I was uh, a little kid, and somebody had uh, a George Carlin-class clown CD, and um, he did something about making fun of the nuns and Catholicism, and I was a Catholic, and it was like a whole new world opened up to me. <laughs> I was just like, oh, because uh, it made me realize that uh, you can be a grown-up and still not be an idiot. And uh, I always was afraid to grow up because I always thought grown-ups were morons that were humorless. And it just happened to be that I was surrounded by humorless morons. (laughs) And so George Carlin kind of really opened my mind up to comedy. And then I always dreamed of being a comedian. I always loved comedy and stand-up comics. I never thought I could do it. And the fact that I can do it is like, you know, big dream come true. So that's, that's what got me started.
0: So how old were you when you were first going on stage?
1: Oh, I didn't get on stage until I was probably 24 years old. I got out of college and I had a degree in advertising, and I didn't really want to get a job. So uh, th- that summer, one of my friends told me that there was an open mic near my house, and uh, so I, I was like, "Oh, really? You can just go on stage? I didn't even know you could do that." And so I went up, and that was it. I was hooked. First time on stage, I was like, "Wow,
0: this is where i was supposed to be." And where were you when you started doing those open mics? What city?
1: Oh, I was. I, I grew up in Chicago, right? So uh, I was in, I was in a suburb called Lions, Illinois, right next to Cicero, which is famous for having Al Capone's headquarters. And uh, it, was, it was a comedy club called the Comedy Womb, with a W-W-O-M-B, Comedy Womb. And their slogan was, where comedians are born. Isn't that sweet? Anyway, <laughs> so, that's, so that's where I started. That's where Emo Phillips started. That's where uh, who else started? A lot of, lot of great uh, comedians started there.
0: Were you always doing political comedy? Were you doing that at the beginning? Well, I
1: wouldn't call exactly what I do as political comedy. I, I I really try to model my career more on, my comedy more on George Carlin, you know, where I kind of more of a social critic and make fun of uh, everything, you know, sex and and yuppies and everything. Yuppies, is that still a word? And uh, so, uh, so when I first started doing comedy, you know, it takes a long time to learn how to be funny on stage. Uh, you know, uh, there's craft involved. And so you have to to learn the craft before I could tackle serious subjects. And one of the biggest problems that people have is they'll uh, they'll, they'll often go to a comedy club and they'll see a young comedian tackling issues or topics he doesn't yet have the craft to tackle. And uh, so it takes a while to learn how to do comedy before you can actually start doing stuff. And uh, so it wasn't until Uh, I would say right around, uh, oh, the Iraq War is what really got me, you know, kind of made me more interested in talking about current events on stage. Before that, I was mostly talking about my personal life and stuff like in observations, but the Iraq War really did it. And then the UCB Theater, which is a popular comedy theater in New York and now in Los Angeles, and that's where Amy Poehler comes from and a lot of people like that. And um, they, they had opened up a theater in Los Angeles and they invited me to do my show. They said, would you like to do a show? And I said, sure. And now I just had to think of one. <laughs> so I had been watching a lot of TV news because I had a back injury. And so I was, uh, wasn't was really mobile. And I was watching a lot of TV news. And I could not get over how horrible our TV news was. I just could not get over it. And so that was basically my show was making fun of how bad the news covers the issues. And that's kind of how it's gotten into my stand-up. And then I did a, uh, I got offered an hour special on Comedy Central And I called it Citizen Jimmy, and uh, pardon my bragging, but it was chosen the best of the year by iTunes. And the reason I tell you that is because if I don't, nobody will.
0: Doing stand-up and doing improv are two very different skills. Did you find that you were received differently in front of an improv-based audience or more of an improv audience at UCB than you are in front of a traditional stand-up audience?
1: No, people like funny. If you're if you're on stage being funny, you know, it's a, you know, uh, in the 90s, in the late 90s, there was this thing called alternative comedy. And uh, people would always say, uh, uh, you know, you were just supposed to go up and speak, uh, you know, stream of conscience or whatever. But well, I would always tell jokes. And so would a lot of other people. And uh, people people laugh. And I'm like, yeah, people like jokes. <laughs> people like, if you're being funny, people enjoy it. And it doesn't matter. Nobody's going to get mad at you for going, hey, you weren't funny in a particular way that I enjoy. You were just really funny. So it's just, it doesn't matter how you're funny. If you're funny, people will enjoy it.
0: Well, comics do that to each other. Comics criticize each other's jokes and, and shit on other comics.
1: Oh, no doubt. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, I mean, I like to shit on bad comedy. <laughs> I like to rip rip my friends about bad comedy. That's good. That's fun.
0: Tell me about your writing process, specifically with writing jokes. Oh, well,
1: it's it's different. You know, a lot of times for stand-up, I'll just have an idea of something that kind of is bugging me, and I'll think of maybe a clever thing to say, maybe I won't, and then I'll go on stage and say it, and that kind of, there's a power to the stage that helps me write. Now, I also do The Jimmy Dore Show, which is a radio show, a web series, and a podcast. And I write for that differently. I'll usually get a video clip from television that will spark something in me, like something I want to say. And so then I'll write down what I want to say, and then I'll try to make it funny or I'll try to add some jokes to it. And that's how I write for that. And then sometimes those will cross over. They'll go into my stand-up jokes, will go into my show, or my my show jokes will go
0: into my stand-up. I want to ask you about your book a little bit. Your book is Your Country Is Just Not That Into You. Why this book and why now?
1: Okay, this book was, well, the the way I come up with the title for the book was uh, I grew up in a big family, which uh, 12 kids in my family. That's true. And people always say to me, you learn a lot about life growing up in a big family. And I always say the biggest thing I learned is I was easily replaced. Like I knew if I died, it was not going to put a big dent in their plans, Ross. You know, I I couldn't imagine my mom sitting around. Oh, no, Jimmy's dead. What am I going to do now with just the 11 of you? (laughs) So I have a pretty good uh, tuned antenna to when people aren't that into me, and that's why I named the book Your Country's Just Not That Into You, and I don't mean your government. I mean the people who run the country, the people who own our government, the owner class, the donor class. So that's who I'm talking about, and they always make the believe that we have a choice in our politicians, which we don't really anymore. There's really one party. It's a corporate party, and we're going to get whatever the corporation wants, and I'll give you an example of that, Ross. The last uh, presidential election, it was Mitt Romney against Barack Obama. Now, that was an important election because if Mitt Romney won, we were going to get Romney care. But Barack Obama won, so we got Romney care. So, this is what I'm talking about. We don't really have a choice in politics. We fight over cultural issues on the edges, but the main hardcore things that really affect our lives Wall Street and the economy it's all one party. We all do whatever they want.
0: And how can that change?
1: Oh, wow, you jumped right to the end. <laughs> that can change. The The only way to change it, uh, well, there's two ways to change it. The, you know, the way it got this way is because there used to be a cop on the beat, right? And that cop on the beat was Walter Cronkite in 60 Minutes and it was our national news media, it was journalism. Now journalism, let's remember us, the founders of this, father, of this country, the founding fathers considered journalism to be so important. It was one of the three occupations included in the constitution. So a healthy fourth estate is very necessary for the United States to function as a healthy democracy. We have freedom of speech in America. They don't have that in other countries, not even in Canada. So people don't realize that, right? So we don't have that anymore either because the people who the news news journalists used to police bought the news journalists right so the people who used to buy congress and our politicians got smart and they decided oh we could also buy the news media which they did so now all the news media that you get is being given to you by one of six giant corporations right so in 1980 there were 50 news media 50 media uh, companies in America and that's and they were all giant companies now there's six there's six giant, even giganticker. That's not a word. Giganticker uh, news media. So, so consequently, Brian Williams and NBC News, which they say is liberal, during the whole Iraq War was being. They were owned by NBC. Now everybody knows NBC was owned by General Electric. What people don't know is General Electric is a huge defense contractor. And my question to a guy like Brian Williams is, how many checks? Do you take from a defense contractor in the middle of an illegal war before you stop calling yourself a journalist? The answer is endless. Even worse than that, Ross, is that Brian Williams. And by the way, I like Brian Williams. I'd like him to be godfather of my kid. He's very funny and affable, but he's horrible. <laughs> He's a horrible newsman, which is why he got hired, right? He's he's William Hurt in broadcast news. He doesn't really care about the news. He cares about being a celebrity, right? So Brian Williams, during the whole Iraq War, would bring on generals, retired generals, who were supposed to give us the straight dope about what was happening in Iraq. Well, it turns out they weren't giving us the straight dope about what was happening in Iraq because they were all being paid. They were bought and paid for by defense contractors, which Brian Williams never told us. The guy who did tell us that won a Pulitzer Prize for the New York Times. Times. And even after that story when the Pulitzer, Brian Williams still never told us. So the number one news story of the last decade, the Iraq war, we only got, got misinformed by our number one newsman, but we got actively misled because of money. So how do we get – so that's the, the sickness is money, right? And the people who own the journalists have also owned the, 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 our congressmen and our presidents and all our politicians. And so we got to get money out of politics. That's the real answer. So we need a Teddy Roosevelt to break up the media companies, is what we really need. And then we also need to get money out of politics. And how do you get money out of politics? Well, there's a pack called Wolf Pack, And they have a website called Wolf- There's a dash in the middle. wolf packcom It's like the Mayday PAC. It's their whole point is to get money out of politics. And they don't feel like they're going to get it done through Congress, which they're not. Their idea is to go around Congress and we pass a constitutional amendment amendment, right? And an amendment because the Supreme Court now says that money is speech and that corporations are people because they're bought by the same goddamn people okay so here we go right so we got to get money out of politics and we started it in New Hampshire or Vermont and we got them to pass to uh, call the call for a constitutional convention on this issue getting money out of politics and then uh, so people said wow well you got a small state it's easy to get a small state which believe me it wasn't easy when we started trying to get this bill passed in Vermont it was 26 to 2 against us in the Senate well we got them passed. we had a lot of legwork and a lot now You'll never get it passed in a big state. You'll never get it passed in a state that has oil money or defense contractors. Or te- We got it passed in California, which has all those things. So that's how you fix it, Ross. You get money out of politics, and you return democracy back to the people. You look at even in red states, uh, things that were considered liberal pass overwhelmingly, like the minimum wage, right? So the problem is that our political leaders aren't responsive to the voters anymore. They only respond to their donors. So there's a donor class in America, and that's who's really running everything. And that's why we're, even though we're in the middle of a record comeback, right? corporations are making record profits. Wall Street is at an all-time high, yet we still are living in a country with the biggest income disparity since the Gilded Age. And that means that the people have rigged the economy. Now, if you watch Fox News, they'll tell you the people who have rigged the economy are the people who are on welfare. They've rigged the economy so they're now they're the poorest people in the state, all those fat cats at the bottom. But the people who have really rigged the economy are the people, the handful of people who are in control of this economy, meaning the people who are on Wall Street and big corporations who own all our media, who also own Barack Obama and the rest of the Congress. So we've got to get money out of politics. I hope that wasn't too long i an answer.
0: Well, we just had the midterm elections, Jimmy. The Democrats took a beating. What can Barack Obama do to salvage the last two years of his presidency? Barack
1: Obama's presidency was over after he passed health care. I mean, that was it. He wanted to pass health care. The only other thing he really wants to do is cut Medicare and Social Security. I know that sounds funny, right, because that seems to be the thing that the Democrats would swear up and down against, right, that they would never cut Medicare and Social Security. But that's what Barack Obama wants to do, right? He wants to – that that would be considered – as him as a big achievement. If he was able to, and, and they're going to do it, I have a, because that's the only thing they're going to be able to work on, is stuff that Republicans want to do. By the way, there's no left in America, Ross. People say there's left, there's, there's no liberal media, right? I just proved it to you, there's no liberal media. By the way, the same company that owned Brian Williams owns MSNBC, and during the Iraq War, MSNBC was owned by Microsoft, which wants to privatize education, and NBC, which we all know is a defense, was owned by a defense contract. So we during the Iraq war we were getting our anti-war message from a defense contractor which is hilarious so there is no liberal media in America and there is no left because if Barack Obama was a lefty he would have proposed a Medicare for all, which is the left solution to healthcare care problems but he didn't he proposed the rights version of our health care solution, which is Romney care, which was the Heritage Foundation's idea to uh, combat Clinton's idea of what he wanted to do with health reform. So right now we have a black Muslim socialist, as that's what they'll tell you, who's implementing the Heritage Foundation health care plan from 20 fucking years ago. And so there is no left in America. There is no liberal media. Barack Obama finally is for gay marriage. You know, so is goddamn Bob Dole. So every position he has that seems liberal, it only seems that way because the other party is batshit
0: crazy. I want to mix it up a little bit, Jimmy. Tell me about your worst experience in front of a live audience.
1: My worst experience in front? Well, boy, there's been tons. <laughs> I've had lots of... Um... I would say the uh, you know I'll give you an example of things that happen all the time uh, I was uh, I, right after 9/11 I was doing some George Bush Bush jokes in Houston because I'm brilliant and uh, <laughs> right in the middle of some because I think it you know it, it takes a little you know it takes ball you know everybody did George Bush jokes in 2008 I was doing them in 2001 okay that's what it takes balls right so I I, I was doing them then and a guy yelled out to me he goes hey uh, he's protecting your freedom of speech now shut shut the fuck up, buddy. And I was like, ooh, I was caught in a riddle. <laughs> I was caught in a riddle. So that—that's that, that's the kind of things that happen. I just taped my uh, third uh, hour special uh, last two weeks ago on a Friday here in Los Angeles in North Hollywood at the El Portal Theater. I was doing a joke about the Occupy Wall Street people, and I was using sarcasm. And the joke I told was, uh, I don't know how you guys feel about Occupy Wall Street, but is there anything more disgusting than a bunch of dirty degenerates making a perfectly valid point? So I do that joke, and that joke is actually, if you, it's it's, it's satirical. It's in support. It's in support of the Occupy Wall Street people. Well, there was a young, drunk Occupy Wall Street guy there who didn't get it because alcohol kind of impedes your ability to get sarcasm and he started screaming at me in the middle of the television taping that you're an asshole and you suck and you're no George Carlin and all this stuff. And the thing that was funny to me was that he seemed shocked that he had to leave. (laughs) Like he didn't get why we were kicking him out. I don't know, maybe because we're spending $100,000 on a television taping. And I told him, I said, if we were in a nightclub, this would be fun. I would make fun of you. Everyone would laugh at you. You'd wake up tomorrow feeling a little more humiliated and you'd slap your mother because she raised a moron but right now i'm doing a tv taping so you're just gonna have to leave
0: (laughs) how do you normally handle hecklers one of the most awkward things i've ever seen i went to a comedy show once and there was this guy who was he was just terrible but he was getting heckled nonstop, and he just looked out into the audience and he says i'm not one of these comedians that knows how to handle hecklers all this makes me want to do is cry and he (laughs) just walked and he walked off the stage and that was that was it well good for him
1: i say good for him I don't know if I've ever walked off the stage. Uh, one time, I think I, I did, because uh, the guy threw shit at me. But other than that, I don't think I've ever walked off. Oh, I had a guy, I had a guy rush the stage. Oh, no, no. I had a guy, yeah, yeah, a couple times. I've had people rush the stage at me. One time in Vegas at Planet Hollywood, I had some <laughs> I had some guy come at me, and uh, like on stage. And then I had, an, at one time in Appleton, Wisconsin, I had a biker come on stage because I called him uh, a pussy. And uh, and then he wanted to show, you know, he wanted everybody to know who the real pussy was, and I had no problem admitting that it was me. <laughs> I'm actually the real pussy. I didn't I didn't think he would come up there. Uh, so uh, how do I handle it? You know, they're pretty easy to. For me, anyway, you know, hecklers, they're, they're, they're gutless, right? Because if they had real balls, they would be doing what I was doing, but they don't, right? And all you have to do is say that. <laughs> and
0: I just go, hey, if you want to come up here for five minutes, I'd love to hear your, your ideas. And
1: they never do because
0: they're pussies. Is being a working comedian what you expected it to be?
1: I didn't really have, I didn't know what it would be like, but it's, uh, it's funny, you know, no, it's different in, in, in this way. Uh, like uh, I one time heard, I think it was Jerry Seinfeld, might have, someone like that was being interviewed and they were talking about the show business and is uh, it glamorous and all that. And he said, you know, what's interesting is every time I go in to do a show, you know, you you, you always go, well, where where do the, uh, you know, you, all the fans are hanging out out in the front waiting for me to come in and so I can sign an autograph because, but, uh, comedians artists never go in the front door if you want to know where the comedian goes in to go do his show, look where the dumpster is that 's wherever that is where there 's a door near that that 's the one we 're going in and that 's just it 's just funny to me right like I was doing a comedy spy so. So there's just one day you can be doing the the Tonight Show, or you can be doing your own comedy special, and the next night you can be on stage in a bar in front of a dartboard board and having somebody scream at you, and that's just the way comedy is. You know, one day you're doing this great gig, the other because you want to perform every night, right? And you can't every, you know, unless unless you're George Carlin or or Chris Rock, you know, every night isn't in 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 front of a, a live a, a sold out theater, right? So you do comedy wherever you can. And that's, to me, the, the interesting thing is how the ups and downs of comedy. One night I'll be doing a TV show. The next night I'll be doing a midnight show in you know, Omaha, Nebraska in front of 20 drunks. You know, you never know uh, what's going to happen in comedy. So that's the, that's the only difference is the highs and the lows, even when your career is going well. Like when your career – even when you're on top,
0: you end up – you never know where you're going to be at midnight on a Friday night. You've been listening to Jimmy Dore. Jimmy is a comedian, radio host, and author of the book, Your Country Is Just Not That Into You. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Jimmy underscore Dore. That's D-O-R-E. Jimmy, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Ross, my pleasure. Thanks
1: for having me, pal.